Amen. Now I'm going to grab a seat. Well, I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. I really enjoyed uh, my, my time with family. We spent time with my uh, in-laws, and uh, it was just a, a great time to, to spend with, with family. And uh, just, just hope it was a refreshing time for, for you. I know sometimes holidays can be incredibly hectic. I do hope it was a refreshing time. The week before Thanksgiving, my wife and uh, I and our boys, we were on vacation. We, we were in Florida and the most amazing thing happened. We came back from vacation and I, I hopped on the scale, which probably isn't a smart idea, like right after vacation. I was, I had lost two pounds on vacation. Like, I, I don't know, that's, that's pretty crazy. I, and I was not going to the gym, I promise. I was not going to the gym. Um, but I lost two pounds on vacation. And then the reality of Thanksgiving set in. And uh, yeah, that, that, uh, that two pounds didn't, didn't stay away. Uh, so uh, ate very well. I hope, hope you had a wonderful time with uh, your family, eating good food and spending time together. We're in this series that we are continuing on in called Loyalty and Love as we study the book of Ruth. Um, and I've, I've just thoroughly enjoyed Bart's teaching in this series because it'd be really easy to look at this book as, as simply narrative. Uh, just uh, a few chapters, you, you read through it and you go, that's a really, that's a really cool story of God doing some amazing things, uh, a story of redemption, this is, this is wonderful. And then you just put it away. Really easy to look at it as just a story, but really we've, we've started discovering through this series how prescriptive this book can be, how it, how it shows us of what we are to do, uh, these lives and these personalities that we are called to, to emulate, how we're supposed to respond in tragedy, how we're supposed to respond in the face of other people's tragedy, um, how we live with humility and kindness, how we hope in God. And so it really has been an incredible series so far as we're, we're kind of nearing the end of it, the back half of this series. Uh, I do want to mention that all the messages in this series are online. Uh, next week, we are, uh, we, we are starting officially our live stream uh, that's going to happen during the 1130 service each week. So if you have friends or family who can't be here in person and attend with us, you can uh, encourage them to go check out that live feed. It's on our website, um, eaglesviewchurch.org. You just click on media, and there it is. Uh, you can even see the recordings for previous weeks there right now. Um, so feel free to check that out. We're still getting the hang of it, but uh, it, it's new to us, but uh, that's available to you. And I bring that up because um, I, I really want you, if you missed part of this series or, or all of this series, um, I encourage you to go check this out because this really is an incredible book um, and, and a book that encourages us to live uh, with uh, a grace that sometimes we just don't see uh, in this world. And so all those messages are online. I encourage you to check that out. Uh, but let me, let me give you an incredibly fast summary uh, just to catch you up. Again, uh, this story starts with uh, Naomi and her husband, Elimelech. And they take their two sons and they move to Moab amidst a, a uh, massive famine that's on the land. They're, they're hoping for something else. They're leaving the provision of their land, hoping to find so, something else. And all they find is trouble when they leave um, and go to Moab. Um, so 
Elimelech dies and uh, her, Naomi's two sons take on wives of Moabite women. Uh, and then 10 years later, the, the two sons die. And so Orpah and Ruth and Naomi are all alone and they are feeling incredibly hopeless. Orpah decides to return to her land, to her family, and hope for better things there. But Ruth stays with Naomi. Ruth uh, makes a clear declaration that she is devoted to Naomi. She is devoted to, to her personally, devoted to her family, and devoted to her God. This was a, a significant moment for, for Ruth as she devotes herself to God. Transformation, spiritual transformation experience here. Meanwhile, they're both returning to Bethlehem broken. They are, they are hurting, they are mourning. This is a tragic time for them. And, and Naomi goes so far as to say, I'm, I'm changing my name to Mara. And Mara, as we've discussed in, in the series, Mara means bitter. And, and here's why that's significant. In the Jewish cult culture, names were, were incredibly significant. They meant something. And in fact, if you look through a lot of the characters of the Old Testament, if you look up what their name means, you, you can start to discover that the, their name reflects who they are. A lot of times that, that's the case. Not every time, but a lot of times that's the, the case. Their, their name reflects who they become. God changes people's names to show transformation of who they are, transformation of mission and purpose. Um, so names are incredibly significant. And so what, what Naomi is saying is not, I want to go by a different name. What she's saying is, what you will see in me is not pleasant because Naomi meant pleasant. You will not see pleasant. I will be the embodiment of bitter. There's a transformation that she is saying is taking place, and she is bitterness. And so, incredibly dark time for Naomi, incredibly dark time for her and Ruth, and yet they walk together to Bethlehem. Over the past two weeks, we've taken a closer look at Ruth and Boaz and their characteristics as they meet together, as we read about in chapter two. Ruth goes to Boaz, uh, his fields, to glean among the grain the leftovers of the harvest. She, she's, uh, it's something that was a common practice of those who are poor or widowed to, to hope and be at the mercy of the master of the field to get something to survive on. And Yet Boaz reacts with incredible grace and kindness, offering her food and protection. And we read about how, how Ruth responds. Ruth responds, and we read in uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. It says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and you came to a people that, did not, uh, that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done. A full reward to be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. So what Boaz is saying is that now... Ruth, you are no longer at the mercy of the, the master of this land. You, you need to understand that you are under the provision of our God. You are under his covering, his love, his protection. This is an incredibly significant thing, especially for Ruth, who was a Moabite. 
It's really important for you to know Boaz didn't have to do this. Boaz didn't have to show such grace and kindness. Uh, In fact, he could have done the opposite. He could have treated her harshly, sent her to somebody else's lands, Um, but he didn't. He chose to trust in her. And again, we we talked a lot about why that that is in the previous weeks. We're going to come back to this verse a little bit later um, because it's really significant for today. So after that amazing day of blessing, Ruth goes home and shares everything with her mother-in-law. And the third chapter of Ruth begins with the word then, explaining there's some sort of passage of time. Now, I am at no point going to um, suggest that I know how harvesting wheat works. I don't. Ask me to do some graphic design, awesome. Ask me to do some website editing, yeah, no problem. I don't think Boaz could do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> one up them. Um, but no, I have no idea how uh, wheat harvesting works. And so uh, when I read stuff like uh, winnowing or the threshing floor, understand that I had to go to Wikipedia 90 times to figure out, okay, what does that mean? Like, what's the difference between threshing and winnowing and harvesting? So um, I'm just going to tell you what uh, I read. Um, <laughs> So they're moving on from the threshing phase to the winnowing phase, which happens at the end of the harvesting phase. Got it? Okay. Um, (laughs) So uh, this winnowing phase is kind of the the end of the whole process. And and really, more than likely, there are probably about two months that pass between Naomi's first meeting with Boaz, um, in, in which time she's working regularly in these fields. And so about two months have passed. We're getting to the end of this time that they're going to spend in proximity with one another. And that's where we pick up of chapter three here. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Ruth chapter three today. And uh, I'm reading out of the ESV. And this is what it says. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that you may be well, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you, you were? See, he is winnowing the barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go, uncover his feet, lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now we're going to pause here for a second. So here we have Naomi concerned about Ruth's future, concerned about the the future of her family line uh, through Ruth, and she's devised a plan to see her family line redeemed through Ruth and Boaz. So here's what I want to know. What happened to Naomi? Like I just said that in in chapter one, uh, as it concludes, she's saying, I am bitter. There is very little, um, very little hope in the words she is using. She's saying, God has chosen to act bitterly upon me and I will be bitter. That does not sound like somebody who is hopeful. And, and, and here's why this is significant, because there's a subtext here. Because here's the truth, and it's a sad truth. People without hope do not make elaborate plans for the future. People without hope don't think about what's next. And that's really 
really incredibly tragic. But the other thing that's really amazing is the tiniest amount of hope allows people to dream. The tiniest fraction of hope allows for people to to dream and plan and and put things into practice. Here's an example of what I mean. Um, If you don't believe that the tiniest sliver of hope can allow a a, a person to, to dream beyond their wildest imaginations, then, then look no further than the lottery. When the lottery uh, takes place, especially when one of these like, really big mega millions, what, whatever, it's come out, people come out of the woodwork and buy a ticket. The likelihood of any person winning with one ticket is minuscule, right? It's tiny. It's hilarious that anybody would spend any money on that tiny bit of hope. But here's the thing. Every person... I don't, I don't know a, a person who has done this. Every person who bu- has bought a ticket has one thought that hits their brain, even a little bit. What if, right? Every person who buys a ticket in that situation will think, but what if? What, what if that tiny fraction hits me? And they think about the things they could have, the things they would do. They're churchgoer, they're like, okay, how much is Bart gonna expect me to give? It? Are they gonna question where this money came from? Like, what I don't, I mean, now, every person hopes and dreams, even a little bit. It's fun. It's fun to dream. That dream doesn't take place without hope, without hope taking place. And when we think about how thin of a sliver of hope that is, uh, we we can look no further than all those different comparisons they make of of the likelihood of other things happening if, uh, rather than winning the lottery. I love those. Like, there's the the one you're more likely to be bitten by a shark, right? There's the the common one they throw throw out there, there's a higher likelihood that you'll be struck by lightning. There's a higher likelihood that you'll be be an astronaut. Now, again, to... (laughs) To win the lottery, you have to buy a ticket. I don't think anybody just like shows up at your door and says, hey, you're an astronaut now. Like that's not really how that works. Um, there's, there's other things you have to do. But the likelihood of you being born and one day becoming an astronaut is greater than winning the lottery. It is a greater chance that you become a movie star than win the lottery. And, and here's my favorite. This one, this one blew me away. I'm like, who is keeping the stats on this? Like how did anybody come up with this? You have a greater likelihood of first, being left-handed, and second, dying of using something that was meant for right-handed people. I really want to know who came up with that. Like, who's, who's going to hospitals and saying, how did he die? Well, he's using a pair of scissors. Was he left-handed? He was. Were they left-handed scissors? They were not. There it is. There it is. Who keeps those stats? I don't get it. Um, but apparently there's a higher likelihood. So if you're left-handed, careful, please. Careful out there. All of us right-handed people, we're safe. I don't No, so even the tiniest sliver of hope allows people to dream, and dream big. Like, dream, dream ridiculous, even with the tiniest bit of hope. And so here's what we see in Naomi. Something happened... And that, that something was Boaz. Boaz and his reaction to Ruth changed everything for Naomi. And now she has hope. Now there's still a long way to go. There's still a long way to go. And so 
Hope leads her to action. And so that's my, my first port, point for today is hope leads people to boldly act. Hope leads people to boldly act. Because what Naomi was dreaming, starting out as someone who was bitter and probably having very little hope for the future, what she was dreaming was a really big deal. And here's why this is significant. I don't think it's any... Actually, I think it's amazing that our mental um, illness uh, ministry here at EBC, for those who are struggling with mental illness, those who are have family um, that is struggling with mental illness, it's called hope. It's the hope ministry. And the reason is when you're struggling with mental illness, hope is something that gets pushed further and further away. So I, I deal with, I mean, just a little bit of anxiety. I've, I've had panic attacks before. It's not, um, it's something that I, thankfully I don't deal with severely. I'm not medicated for it or anything like that, but it happens. Um, and when I have panic attacks, um, I'm less concerned with the, the feeling that's on my chest. I'm less concerned with how my breathing has gotten heavy. The only thing I'm concerned with is what my brain is doing. And my brain is constantly saying, you're worthless, you're worthless, you're broken, over and over again. It's the weirdest thing. I can't stand it when it happens. And my wife has learned to lovingly inform me uh, without me saying it and just say, you're okay. You're not broken. You're okay. Because she knows that helps talk me down from that. Because here's the thing. People who struggle with mental illness feel this overwhelming ability that they, or this overwhelming feeling that they cannot escape it because it's here. And how do you escape your own mind? There are plenty of people who try. Self-medication, right? Drugs, alcohol, behaviors that help them try to escape what's up here. But the, the ultimate feeling is this hopelessness because how do I escape this? People who are family members of, of loving those who are struggling with mental illness, it is a feeling of hopelessness as this roller coaster of things were going so well. Why is it down here again? It is emotionally draining to, to be a part of. The idea of hope is so far from it. And that is why we name this ministry Hope, because in Christ, there is hope. Because in Jesus, Jesus takes what is broken and says, oh, I can do something with that. Jesus takes what is broken and says, not only can I redeem that, but I can use you for greater things for my glory. Jesus provides a glorious finish line when hopelessness darkens that. So Naomi, going from a moment of darkness um, to a moment of seeing the future, she acts. I mean, there, there are these support groups for hope ministry, and I encourage you, if you're not a part of them, and that's something that you, you deal with in your family or you deal with personally, act on it. Go. Be a part of these support groups. They're helpful. They're They're important. Because that's where you're going to be reminded of the hope that's in Jesus. So Naomi sees this hope. She sees it. And she boldly acts. She wasn't waiting. She was planning. She was preparing. Uh, she was even scheming <laughs> in a righteous sense of the word. 
She knew what she needed to do. She knew what she needed Ruth to do. And so she asks Ruth to step up to this challenge. She looks at Ruth and basically says, it is time. She doesn't want to kick Ruth to the curb. She wants her to succeed. She wants her to see this as a perfect opportunity to act in boldness. And what, I keep saying bold because what she was doing was bold. What she was asking Ruth to do was incredibly bold. She was asking him, uh, asking her, sorry, to go <laughs> under the cover of night and to go and lay with a man that was not her husband. Scandalous there. This is a big deal. Let's look at Ruth's response. Verse five, Ruth says, all that you say, I will do. This is powerful. Because here's the other thing. Hope also leads us to trust boldly. It leads us to boldly trust. Trust beyond what we can see. Because let me, let me explain how crazy this response is from Ruth. She says, all that you say, I will do. Did we listen to what she just said? She just said, get cleaned up, get pretty, go down to the threshing floor at night, spy on a guy a little bit, just kind of stalk him just a little bit. Wait for him to eat and drink and then go and lay down and fall asleep. Then you sneak up, you sneak up to him and you uncover his feet, making sure that he's going to wake up in the night cold. Okay, listen, if I go into my bedroom and uncover my wife's feet, I'm getting kicked in the face. That's just going to happen. <laughs> it's probably going to take place. So he says, go and uncover his feet, then lay down. And the last instruction that Naomi gives Ruth is the most insane thing ever. She's asking her to act in boldness and trust her boldly in this. As this was the last instruction. So lay there, and then he will tell you what to do. Naomi's plan goes no further than saying, I hope he gets the message. He's going to take the reins, not, okay, now next, 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 this. We can feel secure in that plan, but she's being asked to go and say, do all these things, and then hope he wakes up in a good mood. Bold. Bold action and bold of Ruth to trust this way. That's it. Smell good, look good, stalk a guy, mess with his blanket, lay down. Wait for him. Bold amount of trust. And let's be honest, there's something very suggestive about what Ruth is being asked to do. There's no way around that. Listen, I was a student pastor here for eight years. I know what a 16-year-old guy is probably thinking of the story of a woman laying down at the foot of the bed. This is suggestive. There's a reason she went at night. There's a reason she went, because people could misunderstand this. She's going to lay down next to a man. Very suggestive. Biblical context or not, this is borderline scandalous. How does Naomi know this is going to go well? How does Ruth know this is going to go well? We have to remember, Ruth is not hoping in Naomi. She's not hoping in Boaz. She's hoping in God. She believes, as Boaz told her, has placed a wing of covering over her. She's trusting in God in this. So you can act boldly and trust boldly when you live in a hope of a future based on the will of God and it's founded in righteousness. Because the other thing is, I think we all understand that we, 
We can put our hope in things that are not righteous. We can hope in things that are unrighteous, things that are selfish in pursuit. And when we hope in those things, it can cause us to trust in things that are dangerous to trust in. Trust in people that are dangerous to trust in. It can lead to incredible foolish and foolish actions and foolish trust. But when that hope is centered in who God is and what he has done and what he has promised, there's no foolishness in that. So let's read where Ruth's trust takes her. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did, did just as her mother-in-law had commanded. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he was a little tipsy, not falling down drunk, but he was feeling good. That's what this is saying. He went to lay down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. That word, she, she came softly, that, that's actually the same language that's in the story of, of David sneaking up to potentially kill King Saul. This is, this is like covert operations sort of thing. Like she is doing something that is secret. And so she uncovers his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled. I would be too. Quick, quick little side story. I woke up once, uh, I was living with some, some friends, um, and uh, woke up once, and uh, they had had friends over the night before, and one of their friends was sleeping in my room. I woke up to go to church, it was Sunday morning, I was working at another church, I woke up, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> like there's somebody laying in my room, I don't know who it is. He, he kind of wakes up and looks at me, and here was my reaction, sorry. Why am I apologizing to him? Wait a second, why did I apologize to him? Get out of my room. <laughs> like, it was the weirdest thing. Apparently he had a sleepwalking issue. So maybe not invite him to sleep over then. I don't know. Sorry, just a side story. It just popped in my head. So I can't imagine what Boaz was feeling when he wakes up. He's like, oh, it's a woman at the feet, foot of my bed. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. What I find interesting about Ruth's response is that was not part of Naomi's plan. Naomi didn't say, when he wakes up, tell him why you're there. Naomi wanted Boaz to just get the hint. But Naomi, but Ruth was trusting in this situation. Ruth knew what she was to do. And here's what's significant. That's a proposal. Ruth basically just proposed to Boaz, saying, I'm Ruth. I'm asking you to become the manifestation of God's love for me and my family. Cover me with your wing. As you said before, God was covering me with his wing. Cover me and you are our redeemer. By claiming that you are our redeemer, he's saying you can write this by marrying me. It was a proposal. There's no way around that. So, how does Boaz respond? He says in verse 10, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, that you have made this last kindness greater than the first. The first kindness was what she did for Naomi. He's saying this is greater than that. 
and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. There's There's a family member who is closer in lineage that has the right before he does. The redeemer nearer than I remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he will not redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before anyone can recognize another. He said, Let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Again, this is scandalous. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing, hold it out. She held it, and he measured uh, six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. She came to her mother-in-law. She said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she said, uh, and she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out. For this man, the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Every time I read that passage, I like Boaz more and more. He's an amazing man. And so we get what's happening. He wakes up because his feet are cold. He wakes up, he sees a woman at the foot of his bed. Shockingly, there she is. And his reaction is to ask who she is. And when she states why she's there, Boaz is blown away. He's even more kind to to her in this moment. He says to her that what you're doing shows a greater kindness to me than even what you did for Naomi. Now let's think about that. The humility of Boaz is ridiculous here. He's saying what you're doing right now, showing a, a desire for an older man no matter what other choice she had, she probably had a, a choice of younger men should she choose to pursue that, but she's choosing to propose this to an older man, and he thinks that is more significant than her leaving her family, following her mother-in-law to a country she doesn't know. Now just think about that for a second. That's, that's significant, because Boaz... I don't think it's self-deprecating. I don't, I don't think he's saying, oh, woe is me. I'm not, I'm not good looking or I'm not good enough. I think he's truly humbled by this. Has an incredible amount of humility and he's incredibly flattered. See, through this what we see is that hope, lastly, leads us to love boldly. Leads us to boldly love. Because there's something particular that I want us to focus on about how Boaz shows a love and a kindness for Ruth. Boaz does the right thing. See, in, in any situation, uh, in, in, not in any situation, in this situation, Boaz could have been so flattered by what Ruth did, he could say, good, let's do it, yeah, yes, this girl wants to be married to me, she's out of my league, <laughs> Yes, come on, let's go and do it. But he doesn't do that. He knows, he knows the right thing is to go and find this other kinsman and say, this is, this is what Ruth desires. This is what Naomi desires. I mean, you have the right to marry her. He's living with a loving heart with open hands and that's what we need to do. Sometimes the best thing we can do when we love others is to allow them to pursue what God has called them to, even if it means them leaving us. 
Now, now understand, this is not an advocation for, for divorce. That's a whole different thing. They, these two weren't married. But he lived with a love that was open-handed, and, and we need to do the same and we do that as a church. We, we try to practice that as best as a, possible as a church to when, when there's an opportunity, like when we plan a church that's just miles down the road, like Renovate Church, we present that to, to all of you that we're supporting this church. We're giving them financial resources, but we also want to say, listen, if you feel called to go and serve that community, go, go. One of the best things that a friend of mine did for me, my, my boss at another church, when I was feeling like I just didn't know what to do um, in, in my life and ministry, he said, listen, Kyle, if you're looking for an open door, there it is. And we've talked about that since. He said, that was the hardest thing for me to do because he loved me. He, he still does. We're friends. We're close. He didn't want to see me leave. But he knew that for me to follow my calling in Christ, I had to walk out that door. And we need to live that way, gracious. See, selfish love, selfish, non-bold love is about the self, about what you can gain from it, about what you can take from other people. But loving boldly with this, this love that Boaz is displaying is, is not about what you receive, but what they receive, about their relationship with God. So hope leads us to love boldly. Boaz showed this bold love that not only did he promise to do the right thing, but then he promised that if he says no, he says, as the Lord lives, I will do it. He makes this declaration. It's a bold declaration using, invoking the name of God in that declaration. Listen, I will bury you if he says no. So here's the thing, Naomi and Ruth now are waiting, now they're not acting, and they leave with more hope than they had than they went into. Wild plan, long shot, is it going to happen? Now they leave with a tremendous amount of hope, and they just wait because the ball's in Boaz's court. And so an incredible amount of love here. Running out of time, but here's, here's what we need to understand. Hope transforms lives. No matter how little, hope transforms lives. And, and here's the thing. Naomi and Ruth, again, when they were going back to Bethlehem, hope was either nowhere in sight or very hard to see. And they were desperate for this situation. And when that little crack of hope shone through, they ran after it. They didn't hesitate. They acted that is bold. That is how hope can transform someone who's completely bitter to completely acting for, for God. And here's what that means for us. Because in Jesus, we have a tremendous hope. Where they had a finish line that was, was murky, here's the thing about a relationship with Jesus. Victory has already been had. With Jesus, the victory is there. Jesus went to the cross. He died and he rose again. He conquered death. He conquered sin. For those who, who commit their life to him, to surrender their life to him, the victory is won. The victory is won. It is there. So the hope is shining. It is an active and present hope in your everyday life. Because here's the truth. 
Every action of hope, out of hope, takes risk. To love based on hope, that's risky. To trust based on hope, that's risky. To love based on hope alone, that is so incredibly risky. There's no way around it. And it can feel like in our relationship with God to step out and hoping that God will fulfill his promise, hoping that God will do what he has said he will do. It can feel like risk, but it's not. It's not risk when we know that the battle is won. Jesus died on the cross so we can have relationship with him. See, there, there are those who died before us, those who, who were in uh, those Old Testament times before the coming of Christ, who died hoping in a promise that they never got to see. But we are living in a time of the fulfilled promise. We have a hope beyond measure. And, and as, as we're going to sing here in just a little bit, it is a living hope. It is an active hope. And, and all because of Jesus. And so what do we do? What's our response? I'm going to point back to what Ruth said to Naomi. Ruth said to Naomi, whatever you say, I will do. Do we live like that for God? Do we live like that for God? God, whatever you say, I will do. My trust is so great in you. My understanding of this hope is so great in you. You had a hope for your people and you acted on it. You had a hope for your people so you placed your trust in, in carrying the gospel forth, forth in your people. You had a hope for people and you showed a tremendous amount of love. Our call to respond as believers in Christ is to say, God, whatever you say, I will do. That comes from knowing God's will by seeking his word and trusting in it. And if you're not a believer in Christ, I desperately want you to know him. Because I know, I know what life looks like when that, fu that future finish line is murky. You can't see, see it and you're going trusting from thing to thing in this world. And the things of this world, by hoping in them and trusting in them and, and loving them, oftentimes the things of this world fail. And the test of time proves they will ultimately fail. But our God, who is everlasting, who has conquered death, will not. He will not fail. So my hope for you, as you hear this message, and you understand how transforming placing your hope in the constant, loving grace of God can be. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this message of hope. We thank you that you didn't leave Naomi in darkness. We thank you that because of the hope found in you, there was a creativity that emerged. We thank you that Naomi acted. God, hope is a beautiful, funny thing. May we not be afraid to step out, even when it looks risky, even when it looks difficult, may we not be afraid to step out in faith because you have placed, you've placed so much joy and purpose in our life. 
That's not to say this world is without pain. Oh God, we know this world is full of pain. We know there's sorrow. We know there's tragedy. We know the moments can look bleak. But we also know that there's nothing we cannot overcome when we have you. We can overcome anything. Not because of us, but because of you. So may we trust in you. May we act on your faithfulness. And may we love fully, selfless love to those in our life who need to hear you. May we love those who sometimes are hard to love. May we love those who've hurt us. May we trust in you when, when the world says it doesn't make sense. May we act boldly in your name, for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.